Good evening. You are tuned to KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. My name is Claudio Mendonca, it's 6 p.m., and it's time for KVMR's Evening News. Tonight, right after national headlines and the California Report, we bring you regional weather, followed by a conversation between KVMR's Joyce Miller and Linda Jack of the Grass Valley Historical Commission about the African Methodist Episcopal Church's history in Nevada County. We close with a commentary by Mark Cunaberti. For their support of community radio, we thank Ben Franklin Crafts, locally owned and offering the beauty and color of spring. For arts and crafts, home decor, school projects, and knitting, Ben Franklin Crafts is on Sutton Way, Grass Valley. Online, benfranklin-crafts.com. And Four Paws Animal Clinic, providing medical, dental, surgical services, alternative therapies, and cat boarding for cherished companions on Searles Avenue, Nevada City. Dr. Susan Murphy and staff proudly support KVMR, F-O-U-R, pawsac.com. Here are tonight's National Public Radio headlines. Live from NPR News, I'm Jack Spear. The Senate has concluded its first public hearing on a series of security failures associated with the deadly insurrection at the U.S. Capitol last month. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports former and current law enforcement faced difficult questions about the events that led up to the attack and how rioters were able to breach the Capitol building. Law enforcement officials laid out evidence that pointed to the same conclusion, that the attack on the Capitol building was planned and coordinated. Testifying before the Senate committee's former Capitol Hill police chief, Stephen Sund, cited a lack of security preparations and a breakdown of intelligence in the days leading up to the riot. Based on the intelligence that we received, we plan for an increased level of violence at the Capitol and that some participants may be armed. But none of the intelligence we received predicted what actually occurred. Sund testified that he only learned this week about an FBI memo that was sent one day before the insurrection with an explicit warning about potential violence. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. The White House has announced that states will be getting around 14.5 million doses of the coronavirus vaccine this week. That's a nearly 70 percent increase over the last month. While the limited supply of the vaccine has been hampering the ability to get large numbers of people vaccinated, health officials hope that begins to shift. The number is up significantly from the 8.6 million a week states were getting the first week President Biden was in office. Some vaccine shipments were also delayed by last week's bad weather across much of the nation. President Biden's nominee for Secretary of Health and Human Services, Javier Becerra, has his first of two confirmation hearings today. As NPR Selena Simmons-Duffin reports, Becerra faced some tough questions from members on the Senate Health Committee, but overall, the hearing was cordial. The tough questions mainly came from Republican senators who argued Becerra doesn't have the health policy experience to run HHS. Here's Senator Bill Cassidy of Louisiana. You're a very highly trained attorney. Great, impeccable credentials. I'm a physician. What would you as the attorney think if I, the physician, were nominated to be the United States Attorney General as opposed to Merrick Garland? You would say, ah, the guy's not qualified. 
Democrats had counterarguments ready, saying Becerra did have expertise as a congressman who worked on the Affordable Care Act and that many past health secretaries were not physicians. Becerra has to clear another Senate committee before he can get a vote in the full Senate. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News. California Governor Gavin Newsom has signed into law a $7.6 billion coronavirus relief measure for residents of the hard-hit state. The bill, among other things, giving at least $600 one-time payments to 5.7 million people, while also setting aside $2 billion in grants to help struggling businesses. He signed the measure into law as Congress debates a much broader and more expansive federal package. On Wall Street today, the Dow was up 15 points. The Nasdaq closed down 67 points. You're listening to NPR. Six European Union governments have been put on notice that their coronavirus border restrictions are disproportionate and disruptive. Terry Schultz reports on how the bloc is trying to manage countries that act on their own, despite having agreed to coordinate border policies with their neighbors. The EU's Justice Commissioner is warning Belgium, Denmark, Finland, Germany, Hungary and Sweden they have, quote, gone too far with border restrictions. The concern is that strict controls on the free movement of people and goods will disrupt supply chains. European Commission spokesman Christian Wiegand says the six governments have a week and a half to provide legal justifications. We trust that we will find solutions without having to revert to legal steps, which can be lengthy. So member states have now 10 days to reply and we will then take it from there. Belgium and Sweden have among the strictest rules, banning all non-essential travel in and out. For NPR News, I'm Terry Schultz in Brussels. Poet, publisher, and bookseller Lawrence Ferlinghetti has died in San Francisco at the age of 101. His son says Ferlinghetti died at home Monday. Ferlinghetti helped launch and perpetuate the Beat Movement. His City Lights bookstore in San Francisco was an essential meeting place for the Beats and other bohemians in the 50s and beyond. His son Lorenzo Ferlinghetti told the Associated Press the cause of death was lung disease. Lawrence Ferlinghetti was among the most influential poets of the past half century. Crude oil futures prices dipped today after what has been a strong recent run-up, oil closing down three cents a barrel to end the session at 61.67 a barrel on the New York Mercantile Exchange. I'm Jack Spear, NPR News. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. A statewide program aimed at improving COVID vaccine availability in hard-hit communities is being misused, according to an investigation by the Los Angeles Times. The Times found that special vaccination appointment access codes that are meant to be distributed in largely Black and Latino communities have been circulating in group texts and messages in more affluent parts of Los Angeles. And many of those people who got access to the codes aren't even eligible yet for a vaccination. The state has acknowledged the problem and says it's working to better monitor the use of the codes. Meanwhile, Governor Gavin Newsom says the San Joaquin Valley will get a big boost in its COVID-19 vaccine allocation. As Valley Public Radio's Kerry Klein reports, that's due in part to the region's farm workers who are now eligible for the vaccine. Valley counties will now be receiving thousands more doses, an average increase of 58% each week. That's because the state has changed how it distributes the vaccine. In earlier weeks, each county's share was based on its population of seniors and healthcare workers. But starting this week, the calculation also takes into account essential workers in Tier 1B, including food and ag workers. That's a huge boon to the Valley, which is chronically underserved by doctors, but contains the three top-producing agricultural counties 
in the country. Newsom made the announcement in the small Kern County city of Arvin. These are the folks that never took a day off. These are the folks that never complained. These are folks that wake up every single day and were there for the rest of us so we can go about our lives. Newsom also announced a one-time boost to the Valley's supply. We are redirecting 34,000 doses that one of our large pharmacies had that were not being administered as efficiently, as effectively as alike. The state is now requiring counties to set aside 30% of their vaccine doses, specifically for food and ag workers, educators, and first responders. For the California Report, I'm Carrie Klein in Fresno. Healthcare provider Kaiser Permanente says its supply of coronavirus vaccine is expected to increase this week to 20% of what the state gets. The increase means the healthcare giant is now able to offer vaccine appointments to people 65 and older. Anthony Wright, head of Health Access California, says he hopes Kaiser will use its medical record system to target people in areas most in need of vaccination. We want to have an efficient as well as equitable rollout for this vaccine. And Kaiser has some tools that other providers and counties do not. Kaiser says in a statement that it has a longstanding commitment to health equity and has been helping to vaccinate some of the most vulnerable populations in California. Kaiser provides health care for about one in four people in the state. Support for the California Report comes from Stanford Medicine, protecting your health and providing dependable care with safe in-person appointments and video visits. StanfordHealthCare.org slash Adapting Care. Paint Care, now with 800 drop-off sites in California where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at paintcare.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute, working to advance the frontiers of ocean research, sharing the connection between life on land and life at sea with everyone everywhere. How do you protect yourself from COVID-19 when you have nowhere to go? Well, that's a question some incarcerated men have been asking themselves during the pandemic. Lompoc Prison in Santa Barbara County has struggled to control the spread. The facility had the worst COVID outbreak in a federal prison last year. But today, local politicians and some former inmates say they're still alarmed about the handling of COVID-19 at the facility. In Lompoc, here's reported Dina Montague. It's a cool Saturday morning in a rural part of Santa Barbara County and a few men in gray sweats are lined up, arms around each other's shoulders, eyes closed. These men are incarcerated at the low to medium security federal prison in Lompoc. After a moment with their heads bowed, the men start exercising. Until recently, Burns Appleby was one of them. We just take care of ourselves. He served 16 months at Lompoc for a white collar crime. When COVID hit, he was terrified. There's no social distancing. You're sleeping a couple feet away from someone else. The Federal Bureau of Prisons says it has conducted widespread testing of inmates at Lompoc. But Appleby disagrees. My dormitory was never tested. Never at all. Never tested. Appleby was finally tested for COVID-19 right before his release in October. In a statement, a bureau spokesperson said any inmate displaying symptoms of COVID-19 will be tested and placed in medical isolation. Inmates will also be tested when entering or departing any Bureau of Prisons facility. Even with this response, the mayor of Lompoc, Janelle Osborne, is concerned. But I think there are some systemic issues. For example, over 11 days in May, active COVID cases fell from 931 to 16. 
a more recent uptick and decline in January, has Mayor Osborne worried about the cause of the new cases. The first time I heard of the new uptick was once again, as I did the last time, which was outreach by members of the families that have prisoners in residence and by locals who knew of the uptick because they have family that works out there. And, and that's frustrating. In an effort to reduce infection rates, former U.S. Attorney General Bill Barr directed the Bureau of Prisons to prioritize the release of nonviolent, at-risk inmates to finish their terms at home, what's known as home confinement. But Don Spector, executive director of the prison law office, says at Lompoc, this has been refused for unclear reasons. They're using prior offenses uh, as a disqualifier. They're, they're using the amount of time served as a disqualifier. Even though the risk of contracting COVID in prisons is high. Spector is representing incarcerated men at Lompoc in a class action lawsuit. He says that his legal team has been trying for the last eight months to get a court order to allow more men to see out their sentences at home, but without success. I reached out to the Federal Bureau of Prisons for data on the number of inmates transferred to home confinement from Lompoc, but only system-wide figures were made available. For Burned Appleby, even though he served his time, it's not over. I was just so, so disgusted, okay, with, with the whole process that I said, you know, I'm not just going to drop this once I get out, okay? You know, I want a, want a voice to be heard. And I'm a proud American citizen, and I think that we could do better. For The California Report, I'm Dina Montague. And that is the California Report for Tuesday, February 23rd. We are a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Thanks for listening, and have a great day. And for regional weather, in the Nevada City Grass Valley area, tonight will be clear with a low around 37 degrees. Tomorrow should be sunny and clear with a high near 59. For the Truckee Lake Tahoe region, tonight should be mostly clear with calm winds and a low around 19 degrees. Tomorrow will be sunny with a high near 40, but a lake wind advisory will be in effect from 10 a.m. until 10 p.m. The greater Lake Tahoe area, including Truckee, could see gusts of up to 40 miles per hour with lake waves reaching 2 to 5 feet. The National Weather Service is warning that small boats, kayaks, and paddleboards will be prone to capsizing and should remain off lake waters until conditions improve. And for Sacramento, tonight mostly clear with a low around 43 with gusts as high as 23 miles per hour. Tomorrow will be sunny and breezy with a high near 66. The Sacramento Valley and Delta will also be under a wind advisory tomorrow from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. with gusts of up to 45 miles per hour expected. Residents are advised to use extra caution when driving and to secure outdoor objects. The Grass Valley City Council will vote tonight on designating the former location of the African Methodist Episcopal Church as a historic site. Joyce Miller talks to Linda Jack 
of the Grass Valley Historical Commission about the church's history here in Nevada County. I'm talking to Linda Jack of the Grass Valley Historical Commission about the history in Nevada County of the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Linda, AME churches were built in both Grass Valley and Nevada City in the 1850s. How did these churches come to be established here? Well, I think the AME church began moving westward in the late 1840s. And with the migration of Black people came Black churches. We don't have a lot of information about how these two churches were begun, except that probably uh, some group of local citizens decided to ask for a church to be established. Bishop Ward, who established these two churches, was in Sacramento and San Francisco both. So um, it probably was a grassroots request. And um, maybe they had 10 or 15 male members at the beginning, and then families as well. Could you talk a little bit about the history of the AME Church? It was uh, founded in Philadelphia uh, at the end of the 18th century. At that time, many white Protestant churches allowed Blacks to worship, the Methodists, for example. But for the most part, they had to be segregated either in the gallery or behind at the end of the church, you know, at the back of the church. And there was an incident in St. I think it was St. George's uh, Methodist Church where black people were actually praying literally on their knees with white congregants and they were basically yanked up and told they had to go to the gallery to pray or leave. And they left. Um, they were members of something called the Pre-Africa Society, uh, sort of a social welfare group, and they decided to form their own church. Um, they wanted to stay in the Methodist community, and so they formed the African Methodist Episcopal Church, which was the Methodist Episcopal was the name of the church at the time. And so they formed their own. There were plenty of other Black churches that would form about that same time, Baptist churches, for example. How large was the Black community in Nevada County? In 1855, our, one of our local people, uh, Dennis Drummond Carter, went to a, what they called the Colored Citizens Conventions in Sacramento. And he reported then there were 500 Black people in Nevada County. I think that's exaggerated. I would guess it was closer to 300, 400 tops at any given time. But the population in the mining regions was very transient at the time. With a 10-year lapse between census records, uh, it's really hard to know at any given time. But I would say several hundred. And what drew African Americans to this area? Uh, many were bought enslaved, especially in Grass Valley. Uh, the Kentucky Ridge Mine up between Rough and Ready and Newtown was uh, operated by slave labor. And that owner of that mine brought about 35 to 40 enslaved people. There were, by my count, at least a dozen Southerners in Nevada County who brought slaves with them to California, even though California was a free state. But the others were uh, free Blacks from the North, that we had a lot of folks here from Philadelphia region, Pennsylvania, the border states, some were escaped slaves. So it was a combination of free and enslaved and formerly enslaved people. 
what role did the African Methodist Episcopal Church play in the community? Even California was a very hostile environment for Black people. There were, uh, in the early years of the state, a lot of Southerners controlled the state legislature, disproportionate to their number in the state. So there was a fugitive slave law. Um, Blacks could not testify in a court if a white person was involved. Schools were segregated. So it was a hostile environment, and I think people looked for a safe place to worship, to gather socially. And churches, the AME churches, were advocates for civil rights, for the right to vote, access to public education, these testimony laws, and so forth. So they were, I think, a safe haven for people to congregate and be supported. And do we know what happened to the church, like why it stopped functioning? The evidence just suggests that the population had declined during that Jim Crow era, the 1870s, 80s, 90s. It was a very hostile environment, including in California, which had, you know, the same issues as the rest of the country, although not the level of violence or terror. And I think what happened is uh, the younger people moved down to Sacramento, San Francisco, Stockton. There were railroad jobs then at that time later down in the Sacramento area. And so what I can see from looking at the census records was that the older people, many of them moved out of the area down to live with adult children, San Jose, for example. And so I just think the number of people that were engaged dwindled. When the church sold off the property, it was subdivided into four homes. Those were built in 1893, 1894. So they're Victorian buildings, but there are four of them on the lot that was originally had the church and the school. What will this historic designation mean for the site in Grass Valley? Well, I think historically Nevada County has not recognized its African-American pioneers. And the landmarks, the County Landmarks Commission is uh, currently very focused on identifying sites for unrepresented groups, not just Blacks, but um, other groups as well. If approved by the city council tonight, this will be only the second landmark in the county for a Black person or group. The first was just approved in November. The Alexander, Preston Alexander home site in Nevada City was just approved by the Landmarks uh, Commission and the Board of Supervisors in November. So this will be the second. And of course, South Church Street was home to lots of churches, as you might guess, Mm. uh, many of which have been memorialized in one form or another. So I think this will just add to that cluster of churches. What will the designation actually mean? I imagine there'll be some kind of plaque. Because there are now four homes on the site, I think it's very likely that the plaque will be across the street. Um, The opposite side of the street of the property is an elevated walkway that I believe is the city has that right away. So we'll probably put the plaque over there. So when people read the plaque, they'll be looking down over the site and maybe can then imagine it being, you know, a one acre property with a church and a school on it. What brought this about at this particular time? Well, I've been researching the community for a long time. (laughs) I think it just seemed like working with a landmarks commission once we really focused that these sites have not been remembered that we began to talk about what sites might be memorable. 
so I think the timing is partly just a culmination of a long research project, but also seems like the right time in our community to recognize the different people that contributed to our culture. The church, um, because they had both a civil rights role and a social role and a religious role, is a pretty good uh, institution to remember. Well, thank you, Linda, so much for talking to us about this very interesting part of our history. That was Joyce Miller speaking to Linda Jack about the African Methodist Episcopal Church's history here in Nevada County. If you'd like to listen to the interview in its entirety, it's available on our podcast. Coming up next, Mark Cunaberti with a commentary. Welcome to another edition of Money Matters. My name's Mark Cunaberti. With the recent price explosions of both Bitcoin and GameStop, and until just recently some stocks in the biotech sector, it may be time to step back and take a look at the broader picture of why these events might be occurring. It really doesn't matter what the asset is. Instead, we see there's something more in play here than some stocks whose price just keep going up. These types of explosive price moves certainly make for great headlines. Seeing a stock gain 5, 10, or 15% day after day is rare, but when it happens, it attracts investors like flies to fodder. It is more common to see price moves like this during overheated and extended stock markets than to witness them during a crash phase. Think back to the dot-com era and investors saw similar astonishing gains during that mania as well. We all know how that ended. Simply put, when some crazy stock rallies like a rocket ship, Some people make money, usually the early arrivals to the stock party. Many of these events can go on much longer than what may seem reasonable. It is said among professional traders that markets can stay illogical longer than you can stay liquid. In other words, a stock that makes amazing gains day in and day out can continue to make these gains for longer than you might think possible. It is what makes these events so magnetic and why even those late to the party can probably make some money. The very late arrivals, however, usually only see the crash that follows. What drives these events? As markets rise, investors experience the euphoria of quick and easy money, and sometimes lots of it. When the gains happen so fast, the participant starts thinking crazy things like becoming a permanent day trader and quitting his job, retiring at age 30, or setting their sights on a nice, fat, round number like a million dollars. Meanwhile, Mr. Market just sits back and grins, as these occasional manias are all in a day's work for Mr. Market. If Mr. Market could talk, it might say, wait for it. To say most of these events end badly for many is an understatement. The only thing that destroys more money faster than a stock mania is a Ponzi scheme or something similar. More importantly is to understand what is it about investors' mindset that causes these ballistic rallies in certain assets to occur in the first place. With rising markets comes loose lips, meaning the more stocks rise, the more money is made. And the more money is made, the more people talk about it. An investor gets to the point where everyone around them is claiming newfound riches. And then the FOMO mindset, fear of missing out, combines with the greed DNA we all have buried deep within, and the trap is set. Good sense is then tossed out the window, replaced by an investing app on a smartphone, or by opening up a brokerage account. A deposit check is close behind. The buy button is then pushed, officially signaling a let-the-games-begin moment. 
Then the fun, or lack of it, begins. When this urge strikes, instead of rushing out and investing your rent check or mortgaging your house, realize two things. Explosive price moves are rare, and even more rare is that they are seldom driven by real fundamentals. It's just a lot of people just like you, all thinking and hoping for the same thing called the greater fool theory, which is to say, some fool, go find a mirror, is buying something they know little about in hopes another fool comes along, hence the word the greater fool, and buys it from you. Just don't be the last fool to enter the fray, and there will be many. The second thing to think about, that is, if you're thinking at all during all of this, is that these types of mania stock buying events usually occur during extremely overbought and hyped up markets, which is to say, the market as a whole has probably lost its mind right along with you, and instead of writing a check, it may be time to cash one out instead. Ignore at your own peril. That's it for today's Money Matters. The views expressed are my opinions only, and not the opinion of any media outlet, this station, its staff, management, or underwriters, and is not meant as investment advice of any kind. I hold California Insurance License OL34249, and I'm a Medicare agent approved in California. Our website is moneymanagementradio.com, where everything is free. Our way of saying thank you for listening to your community radio station. My name is Mark Kuniberti. That's our show for this evening. KVMR's Evening News airs Monday through Friday from 6 to 6.30 p.m. You can hear the show again and Joyce Miller's interview with Linda Jack in its entirety on our website or wherever you get your podcasts. Stay tuned. Embracing the Journey is next. And then it's Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman at 7 p.m. Thanks for listening. And thanks for supporting Community Radio. I'm Claudio Mendoza. Have a good evening.